Welcome to the Tomes and Tropes podcast, where books and friendships collide. I'm Becca. And I'm Carrie. And we're two friends who love to talk about books. Today, we are talking about The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. We both really love The Hunger Games series. And with us both wanting to read the book before, right around when the movie came out, we thought this was a great book to start our podcast. Now, at the beginning of each podcast, moving forward, we will be providing a content warning for both the books that we cover and the specific podcast episode. So today, we are going over part one of The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. This book is classified as a young adult dystopian novel, but it is rated PG-13. Because of this classification, our content while discussing this book will be rated PG-13 as well. I do want to note that this book was surprisingly graphic to me while reading through the first time, so we will try to keep the graphic content to a minimum, and we will give warnings before it approaches. And with that, we will not be spoiling any future chapters in this book other than the ones we are covering in this episode. However, this episode will have spoilers for any of the books from the original trilogy, as well as any movies from the original trilogy. All right, and into the book. So. A quick book overview, The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, was written by Suzanne Collins, and it is the prequel book to the original Hunger Games trilogy. It came out in 2020 and has been recently released as a movie. We are still set in Panem, although in a very different Panem than we know from the original trilogy. It is 10 years after the original Rebellion, which is 64 years before we are introduced to Katniss Everdeen. This book is 30 chapters and broken up into three parts with 10 chapters in each part. In the next three episodes, we will be talking about each of the three parts individually. Now it's time for our one-sentence summaries, where we summarize each chapter we are going over in this episode in one sentence. In this episode, we will be talking about chapters 1 through 10, also known as Part 1, The Mentor. Chapter 1. Previously rich 18-year-old Snow stresses about having enough to eat and a shirt to wear as he goes to school the morning of the 10th annual Hunger Games reaping, only to be assigned to the biggest slap in the face, the District 12 girl. Chapter 2. Coriolanus's District 12 girl, Lucy Gray Baird, is chosen during the reaping and is a natural performer, putting a snake down the mayor's daughter's dress and having the heiress tour District 12 edition. And Snow comes to the realization that his mentee may actually be a gift. Chapter 3. Hoping to make a good impression, Snow greets Lucy Gray at the train station with a rose, leading him to catch a ride with the tributes to the monkey house at the zoo. Chapter 4. Trapped with the tributes, Snow starts to panic as the other tributes surround him. But when Lucy Gray encourages him to own it, he introduces Lucy Gray to all the Capitol spectators watching from the other side of the zoo fence. Chapter 5. Snow feeds Lucy Gray with the help of Sejanus and earns another song from her before almost engaging in a tribute swap with Sejanus to get the District 2 boy tribute. Chapter 6. The mentors, after being tasked with boosting game viewership, visit the zoo to feed their tributes, where Arachne's chaunting leads to fatal results. Chapter 7. On the day after Arachne's injury, where Snow came out a hero, Clemencia receives a snake bite due to lying to Dr. Gall about working with Snow on the sponsorship proposal. Chapter 8. Snow goes to visit Lucy Gray, where she and the other tributes are shackled and have not eaten for days, and she decides to sing during her interview so that she will be sent supplies during the games. Chapter 9. 
Arachne's extravagant funeral came before a tour of the arena where the Hunger Games were to happen, only to end with the world exploding. Chapter 10. Marcus has escaped and is roaming freely in the capital while Snow is processing that Lucy Gray has saved his life, and she asks that in return he can repay her by believing she can win. Ooh, so much happened in part one. Okay. So much. (laughs) (laughs) So now we are going to move on to our initial thoughts and reactions for part one. Carrie, what did you think about part one? So in my first read, part one was a little slow to me. I really like enjoyed the nods to the Panem and the previous characters we had met in the trilogy so like we have we'll talk about them more later but like we have heavens be we have all these other names that are just like okay like I feel like I have a connection to the story but it was Mm -hmm. a little slow at first so I feel like it didn't really pick up till later in the part one but I really love it so far in my second read it has been phenomenal especially knowing what you know after reading the book what about you, Becca? So obviously here, we're only one third through the book, right? Having said that, I have kind of a contradictory view. I have really enjoyed the book so far and have a lot of thoughts. So Ooh. the first one is I was really surprised on how fast we forgot that we were reading from President Snow point of view. You know, Coriolanus Snow is our President Snow from the original trilogy, And there's a lot of arguments that, I mean, he was the big bad in the original trilogy. And to read a book from his point of view, I had to keep reminding myself that this was (laughs) President Snow, the big bad villain from the original trilogy, instead of this 18-year-old boy who, I mean, he still is this 18-year-old boy. But I just, I, I was surprised at how fast I forgot that it was President Snow. So true. Now, with all of that said... I love an origin story. I am here for it. I love the origin story. So, and even a villain origin story, and maybe even especially a villain a villain oh. origin story. So, <laughs> the concept is extremely interesting to me, and I was very intrigued from the beginning. Now, the other thing I was kind of surprised about, and I mentioned this earlier, but how graphic and grotesque some of the scenes were. And if you're queasy, I recommend skipping forward maybe 15 seconds starting now. All of a sudden, we're reading about a flashback to Snow and Tigress watching their neighbor cut off a leg of someone and become a cannibal. And then we're seeing another friend get her throat cut. Clemencia has scales because she got bit by a snake. Uh -uh. So many things that were like, grotesque that I just I I was surprised I was like ooh, like wow what's going on now I first read the first three Hunger Games books in high school so it's been a hot second but I don't remember the first book being that graphic I just I don't remember it and maybe it's because it's just been such a long time I just don't remember that so for someone who gets queasy I could definitely see this being a turnoff for that person With that said, though, I love the original trilogy, and I foresee this book being very similar for me. So I'm really excited to read more and kind of explore this different Panem that we're we're seeing. So true. So true. 
For our next segment, we are going to be talking about characters introduced slash highlighted, some that we've met before. Like I said before, we have met a few of these characters or relatives of these characters. So we're going to go through and just highlight some of the notable ones. If I forgot any, please feel free to reach out to us. Let us know. Yeah, because there's definitely a chance. There's probably a 90% chance I forgot one or two or more. So first off, we have Snow. We we all know we know Snow, but he's our currently lovable, quote air quotes, villain. It's mm-hmm. like Becca said, it's so hard to remember. He's the president Snow that terrorized the districts, killed so many people, including our beloved Finnick, rest in peace, and is the same Snow we hated in the trilogy. I'm a big Finnick Sands, so <laughs> he, he will always be the one I remember. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> so we have Snow. Obviously, we've met him before. Then we have Tigress. I was super surprised that I don't know if this was said in the trilogy, but I didn't realize Tigress was a relative of Snow. Um, but we met Tigress in Mockingjay in the original trilogy, where she was among the first stylists for the tributes. But here she is an intern for a fashion designer, helping her cousin Snow. And then just kind of a questions for thought. How does she go from this supportive person for Snow to a rebel? So as we as we go through the book, we can dive into how we learn more about this. So Ooh, sorry, just to no, jump okay. in really quick. That's such a good question because I was re-watching the movies in preparation for this podcast. And in the Mockingjay movie, the only thing that Tigra says about Snow is that uh, she was a stylist in the games and then like she's not anymore because snow decided she wasn't pretty enough anymore and that's at least in the movies and i'm not going to quote the book because i honestly haven't read it in such a long time <laughs> but it's so interesting because you're right like that's the thing that she says that kind of is like that relationship to snow but it's not mentioned at least not in the movies that i remember at all I know. I really want to read the books again just to like see if we get any more from Tigress. Mm-hmm. But I did. That's a good point that you brought up about her saying like she wasn't pretty enough anymore. And in this part one, he mentions that Tigress isn't anything of certain beauty or something oh, like that. Yeah. I have to find the quote and we can post it later. But definitely interesting that you brought that oh, up. Oh, yeah connections interesting okay okay yeah uh tigress is so uh, so much we could talk about with tigress so much i love her i'm probably gonna say this name wrong but hilarious heavensby i keep calling him hilarious don't know why we're missing an o here i thought it was hilarious it might be We'll have to go back and listen to the audiobook again. (laughs) Definitely. So we have Heavensby. Obviously, this is a name we know and love. He's a likely relative of Plutarch Heavensby, who was the head game maker in Catching Fire and is a commander in District 13 in the Mockingjay books and movies. So we can see some of Plutarch's rebellious spirit and hilarious when we interact with him. So I really love that kind of nod to Plutarch there because I just loved Plutarch. And then along with Heavensby, we have Heavensby Hall, which is just, again, another nod to a name we love. And I just think Suzanne did a great job of, like, giving us some, like, 
we already felt we loved them because like we knew their names which was amazing yes and then speaking of knowing names and probably having some mixed feelings about is arachne crane we know arachne or we know crane from seneca crane who was the first head game maker that we met Mm -hmm. in the first hunger games trilogy so um, we can only assume that uh, Seneca is a relative of Arachne somehow. So I, there's been a lot of speculation for me around how Seneca Crane is related to Arachne. <laughs> Again, that- these names are hard. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty sure it's Arachne, but not 100% sure. I again <laughs> have to go back and listen to the audiobook again. But don't quote us on these names. Pronunciations. Sorry, y'all. <laughs> Sorry. So I don't think we are ever given the name of her brother in this movie. Or I'm sorry, in this book. Is Seneca Crane her brother? Because it is a younger brother. We do get that information. Or is Seneca Crane her would have been nephew had she not Mm -hmm. died i've seen a couple different suggestions online or theories online but what do you think i feel like nephew makes more sense based on the the time frame unless like her parents had another kid like 40 years later Mm -hmm. because i feel like he was probably in his late 20s 30s probably 30s I don't know. We okay. never know how old Seneca is. So I would guess either nephew or probably nephew. Is, I'm just going to go with nephew. Okay. I think that's where I'm leaning to. But yeah, just something <laughs> interesting to throw out. I know. I really wish like we had like a family tree for all of these characters related yeah. to our characters we knew from the trilogy. Like that would yes. be, make me so happy. If you have a family tree... Send it to us. We want to see. Please. I love family trees. It helps me track it in my brain. I think we're both visual people. So bring us all the visuals. (laughs) Oh, something with Arachne. I saw a TikTok and I didn't save it. So I'm sorry to whoever's original idea this was. And if I find it, we'll repost it. But I saw a TikTok from someone that said Arachne Crane died in Snow's hands and Seneca. Crane died by Snow's hands. So I thought that was interesting. Interesting. So in and by. Very interesting. Okay. Okay. Whoever thought of that, well done. Well done. Well done. Applause. (laughs) (laughs) 10 out of 10. (laughs) 10 out of 10. And then finally, again, I probably missed some, but Lucky Flickerman, he is a weathercaster turned Hunger Games host. He is related to our beloved Caesar Flickerman. So Lucky is actually a magician from what I saw. A bad one. Yeah, (laughs) that's okay. I'm glad that um, Caesar Flickerman kind of stayed with hosting instead of trying out his relative's magician-ness. Do we know if Caesar, like, is that his full-time job? Or is he, like, is that his part-time job hosting the Hunger Games? I guess not hosting, but, like, having a talk show. I feel like Lucky, it wasn't his full-time job. No, Lucky was definitely the weatherman and an amateur magician. Yes. Interesting. Emphasis on the amateur. 
heavy emphasis on amateur. He's probably like a little better than me at magic who can't do any magic, but still not like now you see me magic. Oh, great movie. 10 out of 10. 10 (laughs) out of 10. (laughs) That could be a whole other podcast. Oh, what a great movie. Such a great movie. All right. So now we've gone over some like relatives or other characters we've met before. Let's go into what we're going to call our meet cute. So these are like our characters we've just met. We're so excited to meet them. These are just some notable characters. We obviously meet a ton of other characters. So here we go. First, Sejanus Plimp. He previously lived in District 2, and his father, being a manufacturer in weapons, earned their money and became increasingly wealthy, which brought them to the capital. Sejanus and Coriolanus have been schoolmates during their time at the academy, he is actually mentoring the District 2 tribute, which is awkward. So, and he <laughs> knew Marcus, which is even worse. Mm-hmm. So, bless Sejanus's heart. We also know that he's a little bit of a complicated character. He's not really into the game. So, we'll we'll get to know him a little bit better. Next, yeah. we have Clementia Dovecoat. Clementia's tribute is Reaper, who is the male district from District 11 or the male tribute from District 11, that is. Mm -hmm. Clementia is noted to be the prettiest girl at the Academy, but when she is bit by Dr. Gall's snake mutts, her skin becomes bright-colored and scale-like. So that's interesting. Okay, so Clementia, so you said she's noted as being the prettiest girl at the Academy. Her name is by far the prettiest name in this whole section that we have. I just, like... Clemencia it just rolls right off the tongue (laughs) and is just so pretty and I just like imagine her like it's like the name of a flower and I don't know what Clemencia actually means but I don't know I just what a beautiful name. Clemencia is a girl's name of Latin origin meaning mild or merciful. Ooh, we'll we'll look up some some more meanings and maybe post them or merciful yeah interesting okay okay i also really love her nickname clemmy so cute so cute and i think that goes to show like how long that snow has been kind of in this world like he really does he's he's grown up with these people and these people are his schoolmates and his friends and i don't know i just uh Clemencia is like such an interesting character to me. I just love her. I have like I've liked her a lot more in the second read. So that is Clemencia. Next we have our mysterious Dean Casca Highbottom. I say he's mysterious because I feel like he's not telling us a lot. But he is credited with creating the Hunker Games, coming up with the idea in the university. He was credited with creating it. He is the head of the academy and is personally overseeing the mentorship program. What's interesting is he seems to particularly pay attention to snow. So that will be important to have in the back of our minds as we continue to read this book. I feel like there's something going on there. We have to keep that in mind as we keep reading. Yes, for sure. And our final meet cute. I'm going to mess up her first name. Dr. Volumnia? Gall. Volumnia, I think. Volumnia. Okay. Yeah. I'm very bad with regular pronunciations of names. 
So I think her name, I think we only get her first name once in the whole book. I think it's when she's first introduced in every other instance, at least so far, has been Dr. Gall. I, I'm I'm okay with that. We're just gonna call her <laughs> Dr. Cole. Yes. <laughs> that first name is hard for me to pronounce, but beautiful name. Dr. Gall. She is the head game maker of the 10th annual Hunger Games, and she is also a scientist, professor, researcher, and seems to be particularly dedicated to her mutts. And I didn't put this as my favorite quote, but I'm gonna say it here. <laughs> Uh, in one of the parts of the book she says uh she's talking about snow and then she goes I'm gonna go check on my mutts and I just think that's Mm. so relatable because I have two dogs and sometimes you just need to go check on them and she's like (laughs) mid-conversation and like finishes her sentences like peace out y'all I need to go like talk to my mutts (laughs) which I feel like is like you said it's relatable like we both have dogs like sometimes you just like you just got to go check on them. During a Zoom meeting, it's like, sorry, I got to go check on my mutts. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares about whatever this is? Who cares? <laughs> no, I love it. But those are the like four notable characters that I wanted to bring to light for our part one. Okay, so on to our next section, which is our quotables. I'm so excited about this. Ah, me too. Um, So here, our our quotables are basically the quotes and or parts that we really want to highlight and talk through in this first this part one um, and this is going to be something we do through all three parts and all, for every book we're going to have this segment but we do want to note that these are not necessarily our favorite quotes they are quotes that are notable or could be potentially foreshadowing or could be something that we just want to expand on so here are our quotables and these will be in sequential order I think that was the right word. So we're going to go from like, we have a couple of quotables from chapter one and they're going to be in order chronologically from from chapter one until the end of this part. As we talk through them, you'll notice like the ones I speak about, I carry speak about will be the ones that have stood out to me. And then Becca will be sharing the ones that stuck out to her. So you'll get to see kind of a unique perspective of what stood out to each of us, which is really fun. 100%. I can't wait to hear yours, Becca. I'm excited to hear yours. Okay, so let's get started. Chapter one, this is a direct quote. It says, a tendency towards obsession was hardwired into his brain and would likely be his undoing if he couldn't learn to outsmart it. This is huge, like, foreshadowing to the trilogy. Like, if you haven't read that, like, I feel like I would have missed that if I started with Snow's villain origin story. I just, foreshadowing alert, foreshadowing alert. So, (laughs) (laughs) I just, I, like, again, if you were reading this prequel before reading the trilogy, you would have to come back and reread the prequel to catch this, because Mm -hmm. this is just, like, I think this will also be important later on as well so keeping that in mind so again talking about the trilogy snow's obsession with the girl from district 12 in the later parts and could we include roses in this too oh he was very very obsessed with roses and we see that from grandmam so interesting it's a family trait so roses district 12 girl obsession again his obsession with katniss 
could would lead to a surge of energy into the revolution of the districts and ultimate removal of the Hungarians. Yes. His obsession, he like seems to pin on one thing, at least in the trilogy, and focuses just on that. So could this be more than his life's undoing? Could this mean something related later on in the book? I don't know. So I think that's so interesting. I did not even catch this in the original, like in this book, but you're right. And I'm again, I'm going to point this back to the movies, the Hunger Games movies, because we were a little time crunched. I did not have time to go back and read the whole books or all (laughs) the original trilogy. The actor who plays President Snow in the original movies, he is so good at portraying that obsession with Katniss. I can see the part in my mind where he's like sitting at his desk and Katniss does something. Oh, it's right after in The Mockingjay, I believe it's part two, when they when he thinks that she died and then the the security cameras catch them underground and he like is being shown this by his aide or whatever and he like starts grinning because he like gets excited that like the game is still on and I think he does such a good job of capturing that capturing that obsession of it's not about the revolution it's about Katniss and he's obsessing Mm -hmm. about Katniss so ooh, that's such a good one to pull out good job such a good quote I was like Suzanne you did it well done (laughs) okay so another one I picked up in chapter one was quote people had short memories they need to navigate the rubble peel off the grubby ration coupons and witness the Hunger Games to keep the war fresh in their minds. I feel like this is directly related to why the capital, like the very core of the Hunger Games and why it exists. So what the capital people really have been taught to believe. And then they, in order to prevent the rebellion again, they truly need to always keep this in their mind as they move on and do the Hunger Games. So in the propaganda video in the trilogy shown on Reaping Day, in the first Hunger Games movie, maybe it was in the book. Again, didn't read the book either. So did watch the first movie to kind of refresh what happened. And also they're just great movies. So President Snow goes on to talk about how a new era was born. The freedom has a cost. We swore as a nation that we would never know this treason again. And then that's why the Hunger Games exist. And then this is how he ends the Reaping Day video. This is how we remember. This is how we safeguard our future. So I think that kind of points to like how in like in this chapter one quote, he's he's like thinking witness the Hunger Games to keep the war fresh in their minds. So always remembering, they're always pushing that remembrance. And I think we really get a deeper insight into Snow's true personal beliefs of the Hunger Games and why they are necessary in part two. But I wanted to highlight this now, particularly because it is apparent that this propaganda is so ingrained into the capital citizens and in snow. But I had a question, because I really am interested in your take on this, Becca, is could Snow's whole mindset of the games be more of how he has grown up? Or is it more because of who he is as a person? I imagine it's like largely because both, but huge caveat, this is a discussion for another time probably, and we're not trained professionals, but 
I think your upbringing can have a significant impact in your beliefs and life later, whether that's like you're going along with your upbringing or not. This is such a good question. For those of you who don't know, and you probably don't because this is our like second episode, Carrie and I both have a background in psychology. I have my bachelor's and my master's in psychology, and there's a ton of research about this nature versus nurture concept. I think that Island, and I think the majority of the people that do research on this would agree. I don't want to generalize too much, but I think so based on the research that I've read that it's really a combination. Now, for Snow specifically, after reading the whole book, and I'm you get this in part one, so I don't think I'm spoiling anything, and you also get it in the trilogies, so I don't think I'm spoiling anything here either, <laughs> but Snow is pretty much a narcissist. Like, he fits narcissistic personality disorder pretty spot on. Mm -hmm. And personality disorders, there's a lot of debate on what caused them, but culture and environment is a huge piece of what typically causes personality disorders. Because of that, I think that this is probably more culture-related and upbringing-related than it would be himself and his personality. Now, again, narcissistic personalities, like, you can you can put forth a, pers- a personality that is not really who you are. It's a perceived personality to other people. But I think in this book, because it is from Snow's perspective, I'm going to say that it it would be more culture than anything. What you said about how you can have a perceived personality rather mm-hmm. than your internal, I think we see that a lot in part one, especially when Arachne dies. He says, I'm like the main warner. Like people are looking to me because they perceive oh. us as friends. Yes. And so he is like more upset of how, I guess it makes him look. So he is concerned not about what happened to Arachne, but like, how it's going to make him look and how it can further his career and his life. Yes. Very, very good take. Okay, so my first quotable is from chapter two. It's a direct quote. It's saying, not that a girl couldn't win, but in his mind, the Hunger Games were largely about brute force and the girls were naturally smaller than the boys and therefore at a disadvantage. Now, this was so interesting to me when I first read this. It, like, jumped off the page because the original trilogy, the Hunger Games are not perceived as just brute force. They're really a game of wit and a game of intelligence. And most of the victors that we meet, which actually is in Catching Fire, won because they outsmarted their competition. So I also feel like they are portrayed in the original trilogy again not just as wit but also strength so there's that combination there but I went back and I pulled a direct quote from the original Hunger Games and it says it's from Katniss and she's speaking she says what about you I've seen you in the market you can lift 100 pound bags of flour I snap at him tell him that that's nothing and PETA answers quote Yes, I'm sure the arena will be full of bags of flour for me to chuck at people. It's not like being able to use a weapon. You know it isn't. He shoots back. Mm. So PETA and Katniss there, like, obviously Katniss has that weaponry 
feature, but if PETA had been in the 10th Hunger Games, I think he would have been a shoe-in to win, just like Marcus was, just like Reaper was when they're first introduced. Like, they are the boys from, like, the bigger the bigger boys of the tribute. So I thought that was so interesting. Now, Very. I did some research on the victors Ooh. and that are mentioned in the original trilogy and how they won. And I wanted to go through them because I think it's important to kind of note why this quote was so interesting. This information is combined knowledge from ScreenRant.com and Fandom.com, as well as my own research in reading and going back through and reading the introductions. So these are the victors that we know about and how they won. So first we have Katniss and Peeta, who outsmarted everybody with the berries. Obviously, Katniss had some weaponry to do with that and whatever, but they really won because they outsmarted the capital with the berries. Next, we have Mags, who we get introduced to in Catching Fire. She won the 10th annual Hunger Games, but, or I'm sorry, she won the 11th annual Hunger Games. So the year after what we're talking about right now, but no specific details have been released about her victory, how she won or anything. We have BT, who created an electrical trap in the arena and electrocuted all the other tributes. <laughs> That's so mean. <laughs> so mean. But so smart. Honestly, so smart and very quick way to eliminate the competition. Yeah. He's a boom. Bye. Exactly. We don't know anything about Lyris and how she won. Hamish won by his knife skills and he built alliances with the other tributes. Mm-hmm. So that was a really interesting thing. Finnick was the youngest winner in history at 14. I know. So sad. Rest in peace. I love you, Finnick. (laughs) But he won because of his trident skills and sponsorship assistance. So he got a ton of sponsors. More, I want to say more than anybody else has gotten. Like, I because it was so highlighted in Catching Fire. Don't quote me on that. That may be just how I perceived it, but he, that's how he won was getting the sponsorship experience or the sponsorship assistance. So like he was beloved by the Capitol and us and us. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm such a big stand. We have Johanna and she pretended to be weak. So she wasn't perceived as a threat and then came out swinging. She was very skilled in ax wielding blight who he was a district seven boy who won using his skills with an ax. Oh. And Obaria. Ooh. Ooh. First of all, what a name. <laughs> Second of all, she had her teeth sharpened to rip out other tributes' throats. Yikes. Very, very brute force. Gloss and Cashmere were brother and sister who won back-to-back years. They were careers, so they were they had knife skills. Annie Cresta, who was Phoenix's oh. girlfriend. The arena flooded in her year, and she was the best swimmer. And then we have a couple other unnamed tributes that we hear about. So we have a boy who hid the whole time, and that's how he won. He just outlived his competitors. Same thing, there was another girl who outlived her competitors because they didn't have any food. One boy won with brute force. And then the Morphlings, now... They, according to the movies, and this was an interesting thing for me, according to the movies, they won by staying awake and hiding. 
or staying alive and hiding from the movies, which is really interesting. It's perceived that they were already morphling addicts when they went into the arena. The books did not go into too much detail about them and how they won, but according to the movies, that's how they're presented and how they won. All of those things, we there were a lot of victors there. But from this, we can see that the previous victors that we know about are a pretty even mix of wit and strength. You know, a lot of them, they they either hid, which I would argue is a wit, right? It's a keen oh, yeah. intelligence. It's knowing how to hide. It's knowing how to camouflage. And we have some knife skills. We also have, I'm going to highlight Finnick again. He had, he like made the people love him, which I think is definitely that wit. Even the victors who won via strength, and I'm going to highlight Enobaria here, they still managed to do it in a smart way. So like Enobaria, like, yes, she was 100% brute force, but she had enough intelligence behind it to think about getting her teeth sharpened beforehand. Yeah, so, it's like Hamish too. Like you, he won by knife skills mm-hmm. and through alliances. So he like used both wit and strength. Exactly. Uh, yes, one hundred percent. So for the games to per- be perceived as just brute force by current day snow, so current day being eighteen year old snow, is such a different perspective than the perception of the games in the seventy fourth annual Hunger Games, which is where we're introduced to Katniss. Now, this is only the 10th annual Hunger Games. So at this point, and I don't think we ever learn about the previous victors. Like we don't know who the first annual Hunger Games victor is up until up until this point. Like we don't know one, two, three, four, five through nine. So we don't know any stats about the previous people who won, but we do know that the arena that they use for this Hunger Games is the arena that has been used in the previous Hunger Games. So it's a very similar, very similar type of arena. And, mm-hmm. but that's kind of all we know about the previous Hunger Games. So I'm sure that goes into what Snow has perceived, but we don't know that information. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. Round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. all right so my next one is in chapter three so this is when he went to meet lucy gray at the train station so the quote is when he gazed back lucy gray was staring directly at him he started a bit but then remembered that he was the only one on the platform besides the peacekeepers so i wanted to point this out because it is vastly different from the tributes arriving to the capital in the trilogy the tributes here arrive in a smelly, dirty livestock train, as opposed to the lavish train car that Katniss and Peeta arrived in in the first book. And then, if you remember from the first Hunger Games book, as they are arriving at the capital, Peeta is waving to hundreds, maybe thousands of capital c- citizens mm. who are waiting anxiously to get their first real look at the tributes for the games. So when Lucy Gray and the other tributes arrive, Snow is the only person besides the peacekeepers, which is vastly different from the Hunger Games that we know. So different. So different. I would also like to point out this, that this was our girl Tigress's idea, that she, she suggested make Lucy Gray feel more comfortable, whereas Snow thought it would be a way for her to trust him so that he could look better. Again, mm. just the difference of his thought process versus Tigress's, which is always fun to keep in mind. But yeah, yes. I love that. I love that we get to see such a stark contrast for the two ones 64 years later. Yes, 
completely. The next one is in chapter four, and this is a direct quote. It's a little bit long, but stay with me. (laughs) He could feel his image going live all over the Capitol. Fortunately, shock rooted him to the spot because the only thing worse than him standing among the district riffraff in the zoo would be him running around like a fool trying to escape. There was no easy way out. It was built for wild animals. Attempting to hide would be even more pathetic. Imagine how delicious the footage would be for the Capitol News. They would play it ad nauseum, add silly music and captions. Snow's meltdown. Make it part of the weather report. Too hot for snow. They would rerun it as long as he lived. His disgrace would be complete. Okay, so this quote comes right after Snow is dumped into the monkey exhibit with the tributes, and he doesn't know what to do with himself. Okay. Now, I think this is a good place to dive into a little bit about how I have been reading the book. Um, And I recently have turned into a Kindle girly. Now, I used to be a hardcover book. I still I still am a hardcover, right? I have this huge bookshelf. It's organized and I'm (laughs) literally sitting here looking at it right now. It's beautiful. But I have recently been turned into a Kindle girly now. With this book, I have the hard copy version and I've been reading through the hard copy. And as I started making the outline for this podcast, I realized how difficult it was going to be for me to actually have the hard copy and like read through the hard copy. And I'm not really an annotator in my hard copy books. I don't like highlighting. I don't like using the the, the little sticky notes. Yeah, I like... Same. I like my hard copies to be like fresh for me. So when I go back and read them, I'm not like thinking about what I was thinking about when I read it the first time. I'm thinking about what I'm thinking about it now. So, so I like, I like them to be new for me again. <laughs> so as I was pre- preparing for this outline, I started listening to the audiobook. Now, I'm not an audiobook girly. I am not. <laughs> this book has changed that though. So, this audiobook brings the book to life so much. And I'm not normally someone who can listen to it, but this book lends itself very well to being an audiobook. But this yeah. scene in particular, I think, highlights the benefits of both the reading and listening to the book. When I first read this scene, I was like, oh, yeah, like he's panicking. Anybody else would. <laughs> it makes sense. He's nervous about the perception, which we all would be in this scenario, right? 100%. However, listening to the audiobook, I was dying laughing <laughs> listening to this section. I I want to highlight the last part of this quote again. They would play it ad nauseum, add silly music and captions, snow's meltdown, make it part of the weather report. Too hot for snow, they would rerun it as long as he lived, his disgrace would be complete. This is literally describing a meme. He's <laughs> literally saying he would become a meme. Ugh. He would be like, all I can think of is the like the hide your kids, hide your wife, hide your kids, hide your <laughs> wife. And like that's what he's like imagining is gonna down. happen if he like freaks out. And I think it's just so funny. Now, with that, I have not seen a good meme of this. I've oh, looked, I've it's tried. A great one. Well, I want like listeners. If you guys have a good meme, if you all have a good meme, send it to us. We want to see it. We will post it. I need to, I just need to see this like live and in person because I was listening to the audiobook and uh, I was dying laughing. So please, 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 please send it to us. I want to see it. I will print that out and make it a sticker and put it on my Kindle. 
Oh, yes. I also love that he used like like nods to snow, like actual snow, like right too hot for snow, meltdown, like this boy, he's ready. He's ready to create his own meme. He is. That's true. <laughs> uh all right, the next one, we're kind of skipping some chapters. Um, we're going to s- chapter seven. And this is when Snow attempts to help Arachne after her tribute kills her. And he goes home and he finds out that there are still going to be classes at the academy the next day. And like a normal person would be like, oh, thank goodness, I can just process and think. Mm. But Snow, he thinks to himself, being a hero at home had its limitations he needed a larger audience and that's a direct quote Ooh. so in my kindle which since becca talked about her kindle versus hard copy i was a hard copy girl up until like a couple months ago when becca made me a kindle girly and i take I a lot of pride in that you should and in my kindle i literally wrote village and origin <laughs> because i was like he has this need to be revered to be thought of as like oh poor snow like wow look at you you saved a Arach- you tried to save arachne mm. and he needed to be thought of as great and he needed to be thought of as a hero which i think goes to show why he wants to be president and how like he really pushed himself to become president snow because he yeah. needed to be that hero do you think he wanted to be president or do you think that's something that he you do I do he was always shooting high he was like I need to be need to get into university so I can be like he's always shot for something greater because he thought game maker would be too lowly I think I forget Mm. the exact word he said but I do think he was always shooting for president and then his grandmam always being like Mm when snow is president and i think that was just always like his goal okay whether or not that's because his grandmam was wanting it or not right yeah i do think but we love a good villain origin quote oh yes and then again in chapter 10 not again but in chapter 10 so after the bomb goes off in the arena tigress grandmam and coriolanus are talking about the footage and where marcus could be they're just chatting after it when the group is talking about the footage being cut off immediately in the capital, we find out that it wasn't caught, cut off in the districts as quickly. Tigress reminds us that the districts don't even like watching the games, for obvious reasons, but Grandmam says that it will only take a handful of people to get the word out, so it, it would only take like a few district people to mm. be watching it for the word to get out that there was bombing in the arena and Marcus got out. So here's what I wanted to point out with this part in chapter 10, and I'll directly quote it here because it's just amazing. And it was almost my favorite quote, but Grandman says, quote, it's just the kind of story that catches fire. And I'm just like, oh, Grandman coming out with (laughs) book two's title. So we love that. I just, I love a good nod to the trilogy. I didn't even catch that. Ha, I see what you did there. <laughs> catch that. Did you catch fire? No, I just I just love when Suzanne knew what she was doing. She knew what she was doing there. Catching Definitely. fires. And I just think that just shows like when in catching fire, the re- rebellion is really starting to catch because Katniss has defied the capital in book one. 
-hmm. and things are starting to really pick up so I think that's just a, a nod to show like how quickly things can change I like it I like it thank you thank you and our last quotable is also from chapter 10 and this is less about a specific quote and more about an experience that we see here and this is when um right after the bomb happens in the arena snow is in the hospital and he gets a visit from clemencia now when the reason clemencia is in the hospital um we haven't gone too deep into this but she got bitten by a snake because she lied to dr gall and they didn't know if she was going to live or die and she was carted off to the hospital and she has kind of been there for I think at this point it's like it's been like three or four days maybe my math is a little bit off there but she's been in there for a while so I really want to highlight this experience that Snow goes through in this meeting with Clemencia now again I'm going to highlight the differences here between the audiobook and the hard copy when I was first reading the physical book this scene stuck out to me so much because, and I'll go into it in just a second, but when I was listening to the audiobook, it didn't feel like this scene really stuck out or captured what I thought the chaotic nature of this scene should be. So in this scene, Snow is in the hospital after Lucy Gray saves him after the bomb in the arena. He wakes up in the middle of the night to Clemencia leaning over him, and the word that he uses to describe her face is ravaged. She has crazy eyes that is like, and that's like the only thing he sees when he wakes up. Her eyes are all yellow. Her skin is peeling and she's twitching all over. Now, I think this is important to note that he is also drugged because he's been injured. So like Mm -hmm. we're getting this like hallucinatory (laughs) like perspective, I guess. So I'll touch on that in just a second. So he wakes up and sees Clemencia above him and they have this conversation where he's extremely confused and unsure what's going on. She's acting paranoid and saying things that are contradictory to what he knows, like her parents have got, haven't have gone to see her and he knows that he saw her parents come to see her earlier, like right after the bite happened. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like they were here. I literally saw them. Like, what are you talking about? They haven't come to see see her. And then she says, I have to get out of here, Corio. I'm afraid she's going to kill me. It's not safe. We're not safe. Mm. Ooh. So this girl in earlier, and you talked about it. We kind of talked about it in like the notable characters. This girl was described earlier in the book as so kind that she got a lot of leniency. So the example is like she didn't have to raise her hand in class. She just kind of spoke up and like everybody else it's noted like, oh, so-and-so raised their hand and then like were called on and like spoke. So at this point, like she's noted as being so kind and you even know like she's like the prettiest girl in in the class or whatever. Yeah. So at this point she's been in the hospital for like two or three days what has happened to her to make her change from that girl the pretty girl the kind girl to this crazed girl who is like acting like paranoid yeah and then then clemencia shows him the scales that have been growing on her now (laughs) suzanne and this is this is kind of why I wanted to highlight that he was drugged earlier because Suzanne Collins loves to give us <laughs> a, deli- a delirious fever dream 
segment. I think it happens in all three books because she in the first book and this is the one that I want to highlight I'm sorry in all three books of the original trilogy but in the Hunger Games um the first one so we're talking about the Hunger Games the original book when Katniss gets stung by the tracker jackers and has that delirious time in the games where Peeta is coming up and telling her to run and Caesar Flickerman is like speaking (laughs) in the arena and like this whole fever dream like this scene here gave me such similar vibes to that original scene and in the audiobook like they really like it was just like read normally and like Clemencia's voice wasn't even like stressed or emphasis or like like talking really like like really fast she it was just like normal so I don't even want to get into the next morning when Dr. Gall comes back to visit and basically like calls Clemencia crazy and is like just forget about it she's fine like blah blah but what a chaotic time mm-hmm. so back to the original scene He's being woken up in the middle of the night to a friend who has turned crazy slash paranoid, who really isn't crazy or paranoid. Like, we know she's not, but that's how that's how she's being perceived. Because, I mean, if I got bit by a snake and then woke up and had colorful scales all over my body, I would be crazy. I would be paranoid. I would think it wasn't safe. Right. But. Like, she's really not crazy paranoid. She's acting like a normal person would act in that scenario. (laughs) But she's, like, Snow's perception is, like, she's going crazy because he is, like, he's seeing all this other information. Uh He also is told by Dr. Gall that is confirming that she's crazy and paranoid. And that confirms his suspicions. Clemencia actually showing up also confirms his suspicions that Dr. Gall is a little off her rocker, right? Like, <laughs> Dr. Gall's really not concerned. She, there's never a time where Dr. Gall is concerned about anybody else, right? Yeah. She's not concerned. Like, she's just like, she's fine. Like, get over it. She's fine. Unless you're one of her mutts. She Unless you're really a mutt. Care. That's right. <laughs> Which is so funny because that's the next point I was going to say. <gasps> However, I want to highlight that this most likely means that mutts, the mutts that we see in the Hunger Games originated from Dr. Gall, right? Uh, And when we are first introduced to the mutts, they're introduced as these dogs that are made from the dead tributes. So in the original Hunger Games, and I'm so, I want to know like how they came to be because based on what Dr. Gall says, like about the snakes, They've been in development for a very, very long time. Uh, but I think it's kind of cool that we figure that out in this part one because Dr. Gall is like the originator of the mutts, even if it's in a really harsh way. But either way, I'm so interested to see how this specific scene, like with Clemencia coming to snow in the hospital, is perceived or is presented in the movie. Because I want to know, is it like, is it as chaotic as I want it to be? Or is it really just like Mm -hmm. a step in the direction that like, oh, like, what is the purpose of this scene? I guess, is it to give us this chaotic scene? Or is it really to just confirm that Dr. Gall is a little, a little crazy? (laughs) No, I definitely, when I read it, I was definitely thinking of the the scene when she gets stung by the tracker jackers like that's the type of vibe and or when like Peta 
is taken by the Capitol and he's just kind of like saying mm. stuff and like when he gets back to District 13. So that's it just like very Suzanne Collins. And very. Like, very like, oh, something crazy is happening and the people that we think are crazy paranoid aren't crazy or paranoid. They're actually like speaking the truth. So I think that just goes to show like, like Snow's trust in the Capitol is so strong that he just thinks she's crazy and paranoid because he thinks that oh they're taking care of her and yes. they know what's best for her yeah and she's and I think just that... really an experiment <laughs> so yeah and I think that goes back to your original question like is his perception or his personality due to the capital or is it due to him and I think mm-hmm. like this is a check or a tally in the capital in the environment mark All right, so we are going to end this segment with our favorite quotes from the book. And I am going to go first. My favorite quote is, it's a little cheesy, I know, but it's it's in the song that Lucy Gray sings at the reaping. And it's, nothing you can take from me was ever worth keeping. And I just like, I, I don't know why, I just loved that, like that quote, because it was like, it's so true. Like, you can take like you can't take my intelligence you can't take my personality you can't take Mm. the parts of me that actually make me me but like if you can take it away like and this is gonna sound like we're gonna get a little personal here like friends that like this is what it reminded me of is like if friends can be taken away from you then like they probably weren't your friends in the first place, right? So if true. they can be, if they can be, if they're like gossiping about you to other people or if they can be swayed against you, like they probably were not a friend worth keeping. But the people who are going to stay with you are the people who like they are true quality, right? So I don't know, that just like totally hit home for me. So I'm going to say it one more time nothing you can take from me was ever worth keeping. Oh, so good. I love those that quote. I did originally have the the Mutz quote as my favorite quote, mm. but I I changed it after listening to the audiobook because this one was just I just thought it was really good. So, she's just a girl, Grandmam Tiger said. She's district, and trust me, that one hasn't been a girl in a long time. The Grandmam replied, and I think this just goes to show like how different the districts are they have to grow up quickly they have to deal Mm. with struggles and even like a girl can be the start of a rebellion and I think that's again foreshadowing to Katniss being just a girl who rebelled against the capital in one small way um that caught fire again and just (laughs) like started this whole revolution and rebellion and we just we just love it That's such a good one. I didn't even think about that. So our next segment is things to keep in mind. There are, I think I have three things that I want to keep in mind as we continue to work through this book. So the first one, and we've mentioned this a couple of times, but everything we're seeing is through Snow's eyes. Um, We are... We are not seeing this in a third person point of view. Everything is through Snow's eyes. So as I mentioned earlier, he's the big bad that we know as President Snow. And while I think this is a great perspective, 
we are seeing all the other characters through his eyes too. And I'm, I really want to highlight Sejanus and Lucy Gray, right? Those two characters specifically are the people that I think are going to be making the biggest difference, but we don't know them. You know, we know Snow's perception of them, but we don't know them. And it's funny. So even the introductions that we get for each character, the closest one that's even remotely positive is Clemencia's. Every other introduction is pretty negative in this in this part. And even she was like be- <laughs> introduced as being too nice. Like it wasn't even it was like a backhanded <laughs> compliment. So the second thing I want to keep in mind here is that there are a lot of parallels between this time period and the Katniss Peta era. So Carrie is keeping track of the specific contributions that Snow gives to the games that we know and we love. Um, But beyond just the contributions, there's a lot of parallels. So the first one that I noted was the Treaty of Treason reading. In this one, it's read by President Ravenstill. In the original Hunger Games, it's read by the mayor of each district, which I thought was kind of interesting. And then, Carrie, you quoted that there was an intro video from President Snow in the movies. That does not happen in the books. So that's so interesting. That was the one part that I went back and reread was like uh, the first couple couple chapters of how it's introduced. And that does not happen in the books. Ooh. The second parallel, at least in this part, is the capital representatives. So here we have the mentor in Snow versus the capital representative in Effie Trinket in the original Hunger Games. The third one is the arena tour versus the parade of tributes. So the arena tour in this Hunger Games was the closest that I could remember to the parade of tributes that they come in and are riding on the horses and all of them are dressed up. But in this book, it's really a tour of the arena that's publicized that is where like they're presented to actually see all the tributes in one place beyond the monkey the monkey zoo or the monkey <laughs> exhibit and then the fourth one is the tribute center so in this book there is they're in the monkey exhibit and there's like that's it they're not even separated they're all in there together versus the tribute center in in the original trilogy which is they're all separated they train together but that's about it they really don't have a ton of communication with each other beyond that so those are just a couple ones like i said carrie's going to go into that a little bit later on the contributions and then the third thing that i do want to highlight here is the use of music throughout this book to communicate now we only get a couple pieces of this in part one i'm really hoping we get more in part two and part three and we can kind of talk a little bit more about that but the use of music throughout this book to communicate is primarily how we learn the thoughts of lucy gray so we we learn like the first introduction we get to Lucy Gray is the song, right? Is that the quote that I just pulled? The nothing we can keep is ever worth keep, or nothing we can lose is ever, nothing you can take from me is ever worth keeping. Hi, yeah, hi. But that's like the I feel like those are going to be so much more important in learning her thoughts and her background. Mm-hmm. So I really want to make sure that we are focusing on those in the next couple parts because I think that's going to be more important in knowing her background thoughts than us just hearing her conversations and actions with snow because again 
his perception is going to be very different than maybe what was intended. So true. Also, when you're talking about the Arena versus Tribute Center, I don't know if I think maybe we texted about this, but so Snow lives in the penthouse. Mm. District 12 in the Tribute Center is in the penthouse, which mm. I think is an interesting tie-in. I don't know if that was purposeful, but it is, is interesting. Like, was it because he was poor up there and wants to make them feel like he did? Or is it, I don't know, I'm just spouting off random thoughts here, but it's interesting that he lived in a penthouse and District 12 stays in the Tribute Center's penthouse. That is really interesting. Very interesting. All right, so as promised, here we go with some snow (laughs) contributions. So this was honestly my favorite part about going through the book is finding like what he like had a hand in with his contributions to the Hunger Games that we saw in the trilogy. Honestly, I highlighted a ton of instances that just showed like his thought process and how he came to these ideas or how they built on them with Dr. Gall and stuff. So again, I'm sure I will miss some things. So feel free to message us on TikTok, Instagram, or email Mm. us at at tomesandtropespod at gmail.com. We love to hear your thoughts or just anything that we missed. Like, feel free to join in the conversation. So for part one, we're just specifically looking at part one here. The first one is betting on the tributes. In chapter six, the students at the academy are discussing ideas led by Professor Demigloss, I think is how you say it about how to get the capital citizens to watch the Hunger Games. So we learn at this point, the capital citizens aren't really watching the Hunger Games necessarily, and definitely not the the districts. So Festus Creed just says to make it a law, and they would be punished for not watching it by being sent to the districts. This is obviously not what they went for, but it is interesting to hear another academy student's thoughts. Of course, this leads into an argument about the ethics of watching the game, mostly led by our boy Sejanus. We learn that the war was actually broadcast for people to watch, which is kind of horrible, kind of terrible, and that it was watched by the people because they had a stake in it. Snow jokes and says, I want to go down in history as the one who brought gambling to the games. So he thinks that if the capital citizens have a a stake in the games they will be more likely to watch it which is true i think and is a good assumption Mm -hmm. and he at first he thinks it's just a joke and he's just laughing about it whatever and then later on he's thinking about it and he's like i actually like this idea which led to dr gall assigning the students to create a proposal as a group which was the arachne clemencia snow group which Mm -hmm. we learn later would be just Snow's proposal. So his proposal would include betting on tributes, which would take place at a separate venue, and capital citizens would wager on who would be the victor, and the panel would establish the odds and oversee the payments to the winner. This one part was super interesting from chapter 7. Coriolanus's proposal said that, quote, the proceeds from either program would be funneled toward the cost of the games, making them essentially free for the government of Panem, end quote. I think this is interesting to point out that they probably went with this idea 
because of how fast the capital got rich in that 64 years they're incredibly wealthy as a government Mm. in 64 years and the only way that would be able to help with that is the betting so such a good idea interesting that he probably helped had a little hand into making the capital as wealthy as it is interesting was so that's the first one the second one is feeding the tributes and i can't really give the full this idea fully to snow because sejanus did bring his mother's sandwiches for the tributes to Mm -hmm. feed and i think that really pushed it a little bit and i think that prompted lucy gray to ask on the broadcast for any capital citizens to bring them food any food that they could spare to eat and I think this led to a jolt of the zoo attendants. More tributes would get more food, which would then lead them to do like performances, like juggling the walnuts and mm-hmm. doing a back handspring. So if the capital citizens are entertained, they'll give them food, which is interesting and isn't a great look for the capital citizens. <laughs> <laughs> Zero but, out of 10 capital yeah, citizens. Negative 10 out of 10. <laughs> bad look (laughs) so let's talk about snow's proposal that he submitted to dr gall which ended he ended up creating by himself once arachne died so he had two main things in his proposal the first was about food and the second was about betting on the games which we already talked about so Mm -hmm. citizens could be sponsors for each tribute or for the tributes that they chose and would be able to buy food for that tribute which would be delivered by drone to their specific tribute that they chose and they had very specific outlines that he created um they couldn't be associated with games at all which means they couldn't be game makers mentors etc and they had to be in good standing Mm. good standing capital citizens so no districts no anyone who was like associated with the rebellion so this gave the tributes an ability to kind of stay alive and also got uh, again a stake in the games for the capital citizens and then finally you talked about this a lot so I won't go into too too much of it but again strategy rather than muscular build I think he used a lot of strategy before the games and like having Lucy Gray sing and become loved by the capital citizens which led to him her getting more food more water stuff like that in the arena i think his again his strategy was to make people like you in your tribute and remember them and i think that was mostly selfish from him mm-hmm. so i can't give him fully that but i think he like got the idea going but at this point of the book this strategy allows lucy gray and the other tributes to get food and survive in the zoo like we talked about earlier, but even with the sheer hope and having people believe in you can create this belief in the tributes that I can really win. So I think having somebody believe in you by sending you food and water is like, oh, okay, people really think I can do this. So mm-hmm. I think that's a good point of him contributing that to the games. I'm sure there's more again. So please send us more things that you picked mm-hmm. up. I would love to read them. Yes. Let us know. <laughs> Okay, so that is it for our part one. We did a lot of digging into part one and did a lot of background here, so we hope you like it. If you did, please give us a five-star review or review us or share us with your friends. Send Mm -hmm. us an email. Do all the things. We are 
wherever you can listen to a podcast. And thank you so much for tuning in. We do have a last segment for you guys that is kind of, it's not related to the book. So we just wanted to end the part one there. But our last segment is going to be a weekly recommendation from both myself and one from me and one from Carrie. We thought of this idea because Carrie and I do this already. Like anytime (laughs) we find something we love, we share it with the other and we want to share some things with you all, our listeners. So for our weekly recs, that's what we're going to do is just share the things that we love and hope that you love them too. For our first ever weekly recommendation, I have a hair product. Now, I have, both Carrie and I have very long hair. I have wavy hair and it gets very, very frizzy. And because of that, I typically like will straighten it or do something with it to like make it not frizzy. And recently I got this hair product. It's from, I'm going to butcher this name, but it's from (laughs) Briagio. B-R-I-O-G-E-O. It's called their Farewell Frizz Blow Dry Perfection and Heat Protectant Cream. Now, I don't blow dry my hair, but I use this on damp hair and it helps with my frizz so much. And not only that, once my hair dries and I straighten it or curl it or whatever, it helps. It protects from the heat, number one, but it also, I feel like, helps keep the style for a lot longer than it would without it. So I highly recommend it. It smells so good. (laughs) 10 out of 10 recommend. Again, it's the Briagio Farewell Frizz Blow Dry Perfection and Heat Protectant Cream. Amazing. We will definitely send a link to that. Yes, for sure. Yeah. So you can order it. For my recommendation, I have this stainless steel cup and I didn't bring it this morning because it's dirty, (laughs) but obviously I use it a lot because it needed a good cleaning. So it's a stainless steel cup. It's like almost 35 ounces. I forget how many. Oh, 30 ounces. I wrote a note. (laughs) Um, So I use it almost every day. It comes with a stainless steel straw, a lid. So if you don't like straws, you can use like... um, you could like, what's that called when you, you slurp it, I guess. <laughs> Sorry for slurping in your ears. Um, but it is amazing. It keeps things cold. I think it's similar to like a Stanley, but like off brand and it's only $15, but right now it's on sale for nine oh and hopefully goodness. it's still on sale for you all. If you're interested, it comes in lots of colors. It's like a gradient color. Like I have orange and it just like gradients. Wow gorgeous love it we'll definitely send that link over in the show notes for you all yes we will well i do want to note really quickly that our weekly recs are not ads we are not paid for them we just want to share products that we love with you all (laughs) so they are not ads yeah it's basically like a after your book club you like sit around with your friends and you're like oh yeah i just tried this this week and it's amazing so we're just here your friends giving you weekly recommendations. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's the end of our very first episode. Well, we had our intro episode, but our very first book episode. Yay. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are so excited to go on this journey with you. And um, again, rate, review us, let us know what you think. Send us a message on TikTok, Instagram, our email, Tomes and Tropes pod for all of them. What else am I forgetting, Carrie? 
and may the odds be ever in your favor. Bye. Bye.